Welcome back to Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Medha. And I'm Shreya. This is the sixth episode of the Sorry Not Sorry podcast. Today we have a guest joining us. So Medha, do you want to introduce him? Our guest today is Janavi Rao. Janavi is a junior at Harvard pursuing degrees in government and environmental science and public policy. She's the president of a 501c3 nonpartisan organization that drives high school voter registration called New Voters. She is also a nationally ranked singer in operatic music, has performed at professional productions in Italy and the International Opera Theatre, and is also trained in Indian classical music. Janavi, do you want to tell us more about yourself and how you got into both politics and music? Thank you guys so much for your really kind introductions. Yeah, I love to always love talking about myself. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm Janavi, and like they said, I'm a junior. I'm actually a first semester junior because I took um, the fall of 2020 off to uh, work on organizing during the presidential election cycle. And yeah, politics and music are honestly like my my two main, you know, passions in life. Politics being more new and music one from forever, basically. I feel like my parents said I was like singing before I could even talk. When I was like six, I think, four or six, I started uh, learning Indian classical music, Carnatic music. I took lessons until I was a freshman in high school, at which point I was very fortunate to have all of the teachings of Carnatic music, but um, was really passionate about Western classical music, operatic singing, and started taking lessons in that. I'd always done choir, um, and that was when I really like started digging in. Doing Carnatic music, I really loved it, but I didn't ever like feel like a connection with the music, and honestly, it was really hard. I was struggling a lot um, in performances, but then I just, it felt, I felt a click with classical Western music, um, singing in, doing like competitions through um, districts, regions, state, um, nationals, and performing with the International Opera Theater. And I lived in Italy, um, performing in a professional opera after my sophomore year of high school. And I was set on being a professional opera singer, applying only conservatories. And then the 2016 election happened, and I'm from a really purple area, the suburbs of Philadelphia, you know, the, the main point looked at on every election map uh, in most years. And after the 2016 election, I noticed that on both sides of the aisle, there was just this outpouring of frustration from people in my year who were, you know, we were juniors and it didn't matter if they were Republican or Democrat. There was just this overwhelming frustration at not being, you know, heard and not being valued in the political process. Um, and I was 16 and I couldn't vote and I was very frustrated. And that was when you know, I decided to put music on the back burner and really dive into politics. Spring of my junior year is kind of when I really figured out that when I stopped wanting to pursue music professionally and wanted to start pursuing political science. All aspects of your journey are generally really unconventional. I went to a predominantly white high school and I definitely was distancing myself from South Asian culture on purpose, um, in part, and my parents definitely clocked that, which was... I, I'm sad about it now, but I do think that I didn't really have that same connection to Carnatic music that I do to Western music. Um, but I would say, like, my parents never, it was always like, okay, you can, like, you can study music in college, but just as long as, like, you study something else at the same time. And I didn't really have a problem with that. I was like, I want to be a marine biologist, so that's fine with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> my parents actually came to Italy with me when I was there and, like, did their work remotely um, and were always, like, really supportive of 
music, but they had like no background in it at all. Um, my dad is, I feel like, you know, genuinely cannot sing, you know, it could kill someone if they heard him sing. Like, um, but <laughs> my, um, when I started politics, like looking into politics of my dad, who is a like, PhD in AI, the most like STEMI person like ever, um, he threw himself with a vigor I have like never seen um, before. Like my dad genuinely like knows more about politics than I do at this. I would say that like extended family, like not like my direct like aunts or grandmother or anything like that. They're very supportive. But some of my extended family has said stuff like, oh, like everyone in politics is crooked. Why would you do that? And I'm just kind of like, <laughs> cool, yeah. <laughs> great, love that. Um, <laughs> I feel like it would have been really easy for my parents to be like, oh, your brother's made, like, my brother's at the M&T program doing, like, business and computer science. So it's, like, very traditional. Um, mm-hmm. But I was very lucky that, you know. Yeah, I think that goes for a lot of people, actually. I, I went to a STEM high school, and so uh, there were quite a few people who concurrently would were super interested in music and our band won every competition and there were so many singers and we had a lot of people dropping albums left and right and it was really interesting to see the duality between the two and how they would juggle trying to be the best that they could in both career paths. People like extended family or even family friends will say things that discourage people from going all in on things that they really enjoy. Yeah, I agree. I feel very fortunate that I was given the resources that I had to like, you know, pursue music. I will say when I was in Italy, every single one of them told me, don't just do this. Like, do not just do this. Like, have something else because you will most of the time be unemployed. I don't know what the right answer is, but I do think that in the system that we currently live in, there is something to be said about it shouldn't be this way. But as like, you know, women or femmes or, you know, just like non-cis het men, like you need to be able to be independent. Mm hmm. I mean, I think in your case, like, it's kind of nice that you have, like, politics, like, something you're passionate about, and then also singing. Like, you can do both, and, like, one can help you with, like, future and whatever, and one can also just, like, something you can enjoy. I do agree with you. We live in New York City, and here, there's so many people who are trying to get on Broadway at the same time, but because of the environmental situation and the economic situation, so many people are unable to pursue their careers, so now they're trying to have a fallback option and a backup option. And I think what's really good is that people are starting to recognize that creative careers and uh, professions really need support uh, because of how much they do for the public and how undervalued they are. These people work really hard, but still can't make their passion their career. Exactly. And honestly, like people who are creatives, like have, I don't know, there's just like, there's, there's like a new lens to look at things. Like there's just a new perspective and it's really like applicable skills to like a lot of different things. So I have a couple of friends who are South Asian and Tish and they are like, they're oh like, you know, I'm majoring in film or dance or acting. And I'm like, so proud. I'm like, you know, you're doing this, like you're, you know, overcoming all of the stereotypes, whatever, like go you, it's great. Mm -hmm. No, that's yeah. huge. Absolutely. One of my family friends, um, she was like the only South Asian lead on Broadway at one point. She played like Eliza in the U.S. tour of Hamilton. And she's South Asian. You know, she's that from is so cool. Tamil Nadu. Like she's like her family's from Tamil Nadu. Yeah. And like, I don't know, it's just it's like super cool. And yeah, I think especially for like the South Asian community talks about like music. It's like less about professional viability and more about the sort of like characteristics they associate with music like music professionals or like film professionals and like that's definitely like rooted in like sexism and probably classism as well so I I don't think that like when people are talking about don't go into music it's like oh don't go into music because you're gonna like 
not have a stable income it's like don't go to music because like what will they say and that's yeah never a reason to not do something right yeah actually our last episode was about culture that's basically what will other people say and choosing who you want to be as a person and and how you represent your family or your status based on what other people's perception of any action that you take would be You mentioned that you decided to switch from Indian classical singing, not just because you weren't as passionate about it, but also because you went to a predominantly white high school. And can you expand a little bit more about that experience? Absolutely. No, I mean, it's something that I've been, I've actually been talking about a lot this year over Zoom um, because I was really fortunate. I actually just am about to end my term as South Asian, the co-president of the South Asian Women's Collective on campus. And it has been, you know, one of the best experiences and it's been a long journey. So I, I think that in my high school, it was, you know, I was like one of like maybe there were like 500 people per year, I think, or something like that. Um, and there was like maybe 10 South Asian people in your year. I mean, there were definitely things that people said, like some, I was cast as Aladdin in a production of, of Aladdin. And then someone was like, oh, you only got it because you're brown. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and yeah. just like things like that, just like things that no one really thought were wrong, but were said. And definitely like, you could see like who the popular girls like looked like and like what they, like what their skin color was. And I was like, I wish I had like pin straight hair. And I wish I like, I wish I didn't have brown eyes. And I wish that like my skin was a little lighter and like, I always had this like paralyzing fear of like walking down the hall with like other South Asians and just being like looked at as like one of the South Asians. Um, Mm. And looking back, it's like, it's like embarrassing, but more so just like so sad that I was just like so upset with myself all the time and about something that I couldn't obviously and shouldn't change. And then coming to college, I had this obviously very false thought. I was like, oh, I just don't get along with like South Asian people. So first semester I was like arm's length away in my own world. My like only South Asian friend made me sign up for Gungru, which is this South Asian cultural performance with like dance and music. Um, And I didn't get put into the dance with her. I got put into a dance (laughs) with nobody that I knew. And I, if that happened to me this year, I 100% would have just dropped. But for some reason, freshman year me was like, I'll just do it, I guess. And Mm. I made my best friends like to this day um like my choreographer from that dance is still someone that i talk to like every single day and how in the world is like 300 million white people less of a monolith (laughs) than like a billion plus brown people from all of the south asian (laughs) countries you know Mm -hmm. and i think that the journey was just like really me realizing like oh like that was like a racist thing that I was thinking like racial preferences are racist and like um I I think that a lot of like self-learning loathing had to be unlearned and like I don't know like thinking like you know I was pretty for the first time I don't know like there, like a lot of things that like just had to be realized from being around people like me who were celebrated at my school like you know you were celebrated for your proximity to whiteness I'm happy to say that I think that I've like, I think almost every single one of my friends is brown now. Um, And obviously like there's, it's not like a select, like I'm not gonna be friends with anyone who's not brown, but just like Mm -hmm. people who have experiences that are similar to mine and who also understand this experience that I went through. And I I think that 
I now sing like Carnotic music at like some random things. Um, I sing like one of the two songs that I remember, but I sing it now and like I'm not like I'm embarrassed because I'm bad, <laughs> not because <laughs> I am singing you know my my culture's songs. And I think that that mm-hmm. I don't know. I you know being co-president of the South Asian Women's Collective last year, and I've been music director for Kungru for two years. Um, I was social chair for the South Asian Association. I think like all of these experiences have just like I don't know really like made me realize like this is something that I shouldn't be ashamed of like this is something that I celebrate this is something that I'm like very glad that I have in like this community this very like diverse broad community I'm very lucky Mm -hmm. to be a part of I had a very similar experience to that like I moved from India like in eighth grade and when I lived in India like I'd always watch shows that were like from the U.S. and it'd be like oh my god it'd be so cool if I lived there and once I got to the U.S. like a month in I just felt like this huge like disconnect and I feel like Mm -hmm. I wouldn't speak like Hindi as much at home Mm -hmm. and like you know I started speaking English more and it's not like and like I remember my mom would like call me out and she's like oh she's American now and I'd be like relax Mm -hmm. I like totally understand what you went through like I went through that phase when I was in Connecticut before I moved to New Jersey and I went to that through that phase where I just like wanted to be white I was like I'm gonna straighten my hair like I'm gonna Mm -hmm. you know put sunscreen on, make sure I don't get tan and all that stuff. Well, you should still and be just wearing like, sunscreen. <laughs> no, I know, I know, which I have learned now. Is different. <laughs> I have learned now, but um, yeah, that phase just like sucks. And I feel like a lot of people do go through it. But for me, it kind of ended when I moved to New Jersey because there's so many South Asians here. And I was yeah. like, this feels good. Like, I feel like I'm kind of at home. And the whole thing about like you were saying, like, you know, feeling pretty, like, I remember, um, like, once I got to high school, I was kind of like, ooh, you know, boys, whatever, looking for that classic male validation. And I was like, all these white boys aren't going to find me cute because I'm, like, brown and, like, every other person, every other girl is white here. And then when I got to New Jersey, I was like, wait, this is kind of different. And I don't know, it's just weird that it works that way, but it's just how people think. It's so, I, I actually had, like, a conversation with someone freshman year that, like, really, I think, reoriented stuff for me because I was telling them about how, like, oh, like, I like guys who look like this. And then he was like, do you or do you just like the people who were, like, popular in your high school? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> That's definitely it. Like, I just, like... Called out. <laughs> like, and who was popular in my high school? Like, the white guys that, like, other yeah. white... The, all, the majority of white people uplifted. It's not that there weren't, like, cute people, like of color at my school like I'm very glad to be out of it um oh like, yeah and like I I feel really lucky now it's like you know the South Asian Women's Collective I'm not like super cool or anything like that but like it's, it's really you know to be like someone that they can look up to it's so surreal <laughs> that so many South Asian women specifically no matter where they grow up or what kind of experiences they have they still end up sharing the same bonds because they've gone through so many similar things and are able to meet at an intersection and doesn't realize that there's someone out there who's living almost the same life as them Mm -hmm. until they reach a place bigger than just the four walls of your high school yeah no I mean like TikTok has showed us that we're all living the same lives so (laughs) we we're seeing that Um, (laughs) no but definitely yeah and hopefully the narrative that if you look like something then you should fit into some sort of box 
is changing over the years. And I think that there are a lot of political movements happening right now that is mm -hmm. causing that to gradually, hopefully generationally happen. But again, it's going to take a lot of time. And people like you are going to help us change that. And so this mm -hmm. is a great segue into stuff that you do with your nonprofit <laughs> and in politics. So that was fantastic. That was, a really, that was good. Really Made us really good at this. <laughs> That was really impressive. No, I mean, I, I would love to talk about new voters. So basically, like I said, junior fall, 2016 election, everyone was mad, both sides, just because of lack of representation um, for young people. And I think that, so my spring of my junior year, I just ran, like, I had a table in my lunchroom, and I had, like, I got, like, 10 people registered to vote. Um, and I was like, oh, this, this is, like, kind of annoying. But then over the summer, I, I remember, and, like, this is, like, a huge suggestion to anyone who wants to like do something that they have no connections in i didn't have a linkedin but my dad did so we went on his linkedin we just looked up like government like anyone that he's connected with who has government in any way and then we just linkedin messaged like a couple people um and one really fantastic um woman in the pennsylvania state government who was like a mom of like my dad my brother's friend um oh. met me for coffee and she connected me with like other organizations and she gave her insights. She was actually the person who like helped get Pennsylvania um, to use online voter registration, which is super, super cool. Um, and from there, just like people were so willing to help. Like, I feel like just if you if you ask and you and you're there and I, obviously like there's a there's a form of privilege that comes with like being comfortable to talk to adults. Um, that, you know, is I'm very lucky to have had installed in me and like my school and my parents emphasized. Um, but just like started reaching out to people. I was in California that summer visiting schools and someone my dad knew was going to a DNC meeting and like I show up and I sit next to the chief financial officer of the DNC. <laughs> Damn. And I'm like complaining to her about the DNC. And then like she does her introduction. She's like, I am the chief financial officer. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, no. oh my god um but it was like i don't know just things like started happening from there so i came back to school i ran a registration drive literally in the five days preceding the registration deadline and it's my senior fall and we got 85 percent of my school registered to vote and it was like to this day one of the most incredible experiences ever because like we started out with like 20 people in my high school and then we started like slowly reaching out to more people we got the president of our student council on board we got people from the sports team we got people from young republicans and young democrats um and then as like the day went on like as each day went on we we went to the homerooms twice to like give out forms give a speech and collect the forms we had like 50 60 people who joined our team to get people registered so then three days out from the registration deadline we had like 20 percent of the registration forms in and it was homecoming that weekend. So yeah. we started texting people nonstop and we like went to homecoming with like clipboards and like definitely was not allowed and like got people to register to vote. And like every day we got closer and we went from 20 to 85% registered to vote. Um, Damn. And from there it again, continued to snowball. Uh, we got some press. We were in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is like, um, like our big newspaper. And a couple other schools in the area reached out to us and I'm like obsessively collect things. So like I had all of the steps that we had done and I just put them in a Google doc together. And simultaneously while this is happening, um, I'm talking with people at the DNC and I go there and I get, I become a, a national partner separate from new voters because like it was nonpartisan. Um, and I start going like once a month to DC to be in these meetings. Um, and then come spring, I was like, 
I had gotten in, I had gotten into college. I was like, I had no worries at that point. Um, and our team of 50, like new voters, like our high school club was called 2018 new voters. We like had a really like robust operation. We had outreach, we had, um, training, we had like mentorship and we just like, were going out to schools. Um, and by the end of my senior year, we had a hundred high schools that we were working with. Um, and I was going to DC like every two weeks. Um, I was like missing so much school. I actually had my internship with the DNC. Um, so that was super cool. And yeah, now like fast forward, we registered 50,000 students for the 2020 election. We have five paid directors and around 50 high school and college interns who work between like you know five and 40 hours a week. Um, and we have 300 high school chapters. Like we are the, one of the only organizations focused on high school civic engagement and we have like a really robust program for it. So um, each high school student leader is matched with a personal mentor who walks them through like day by day running their drive. And then they are transferred to our policy department who give them another mentor to run policy campaigns at their school, obviously like all nonpartisanly on our end. Um, and they can choose whatever they would like to organize around, but we give them all the resources to like create a club, do letter writing campaigns. Um, our like big focus is like creating high school student leaders. Um, obviously like, the voter registration is like a huge thing, but our theory of change is like high school students are the future, like our interests, well, I'm not a high school student, but like, you know, youth interests deserve to be prioritized in government and prioritized in the decisions being made today because we will be the ones facing the consequences of them. And my whole rationale when I was 16 and started new voters was like, well, if I, can't vote like others can so I can register them to vote and a lot of them hold the same ideals as I do. That's really incredible uh, to hear about your initiative and it's so evident from the way that you talk that you're so passionate about what you do and that's really inspiring mm -hmm. um, especially for me as someone who also was really involved in politics throughout high school and is continuing to hopefully do so throughout college and so uh, with that being said though being a South Asian woman in politics it's an interesting position to be in. And so, at least with my experience, it's always been a kind of a balance beam to figure out which issues I should advocate for and care about because my identity is what has, what influences what kind of things I prioritize. So uh, how do you think that has affected the way that you approach politics? Yeah, I mean, I definitely tend towards like women in like public service spaces, like much more just because I think they, there's just like a way of, of leadership that has traditionally been done for so long that I just really don't vibe with um, in a lot of ways. Um, I'd say for youth, for voter registration, I, I think that something that I believe so strongly is that a lot of people say like, oh, only like people who are informed should vote. And I just really strongly disagree. It's not that, equitable. Yeah. First of all, it's, it's, First of all, like meritocracies are fake, like, and they are not actually, <laughs> they don't actually do anything except alienate people um, because like the vast majority of Americans are not college educated. So yeah, whatever. But I also think that just like, if you were increasing conversation about voting, you were increasing public discourse about, you know, civic engagement. And that is only a good thing. And I think my dad's really big focus is like racism because um, I think that my, my dad was obviously lived in India um, and he was there when a lot of like violence was happening against the Sikh population. And I think that really like deeply affected him. Um, and I think that's something that I've always like, you know, something he talks about and something that we discuss. And I think that that obviously I think that centering 
marginalized voices has always been really important to me. And I feel like because of, you know, the stuff that my dad has talked about with regards to like that violence and then my experience, like not being centered in conversations that have to do with me or seeing, you know, specifically like black women, black femmes, not being centered in conversation um, has made a big impact in that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, definitely when it comes to things like meritocracy, it's just, it goes back to the thing where when voting was first introduced uh, by the constitution, only white males who owned property were allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. And so it just goes back to what metric determines merit in Uh this day and age. And that that metric is going to change probably over the next 50 years, but that metric still shouldn't, it, it, it really is irrelevant because yeah, it's, the country is, everyone who stays, resides in the country matters and every policy mm-hmm. affects every single individual. And it's so mm-hmm. depressing and frustrating, honestly, to hear about people being marginalized just because of some component of their identity that is incontrollable. Absolutely. And actually, I could talk forever about meritocracy. I just finished the most, a, a really fantastic um, class, like a seminar with, um, I think, the one of the leading like philosoph- like government philosophers, um, Michael Sandal, and he wrote a book about this. But did you know that the only, the last time in history that our Congress was so, like, had this, like, proportion of educated, like, college or, like, Ivy League educated people was when only white landowning people were allowed to vote. It's like the only time that our government has had this demographic makeup in terms of like education level is back then. And that's like really troubling. That's really troubling to think about, especially when you consider how many people in this country are not college educated. And the fact that going to a college does not make you any more equipped to like be compassionate or, you know, have that, you know, which I think are things that are more relevant to being in politics. Like you don't like being patriotic doesn't mean that you get an education in the country. It just means that you care. Yeah, or that you're, like, considering (laughs) other people. And, like, I honestly say that, you know, obviously, like, you learn about, like, research and stuff, but, like, you can, I don't know, there there are so many presidents who were not college-educated that made such huge, huge, huge strides in this country. I, don't quote me on this, but I do not think Abraham Lincoln was college-educated. I mean, also, it doesn't even matter what party or uh, what kind of strides they made. All that matters is that they made strides mm-hmm. um and that truly defines that there are people and really doesn't matter what your background was as long as you were part of a country and um there's a certain politician who i won't name uh for the sake of um partisanship uh who mm-hmm. likes you'll know who it is but she, i watched her documentary on netflix and she was a bartender orig- originally and then ended up getting into politics and so one of the arguments um for people who don't necessarily agree with this person's policies which i think their policies are irrelevant it's just the fact that they were able to go from bartending to which i know that wasn't their only occupation and it was only a side job to help support that person's family but she was able to go to that to being a great representative mm-hmm. for uh her community and i think that's really important because mm-hmm. that mobility uh is just another point to the fact that it really doesn't matter where you come from. All that matters is that you have the capacity to care about the other people and try to be equitable in representing their opinions and their values. Yeah. No, I, I do know what you were talking about. And I, I agree. Like, I think that 
there was something there's some statistic about like how many times did obama say that like education solves all and it's like why, why would you say that to people who, like, the vast majority of this country does not have a college education? So, like, if you were telling them that their problem lies in the fact that they do not have a college education, like, maybe we should just, and like... A lot of times college education is blocked by things like institutionalized racism and sexism. And, I mean, we can talk about the cycle of poverty all day <laughs> and, <laughs> and how that's a huge issue in uh, in causing people to drop out of high school, not pursue a higher education, and also the rising cost of private institutions. I mean, we go to NYU, no shade, but for real. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Don't talk to me. Tell me about it. <laughs> I, I will just say that, like, there's so much space for, for South Asian women in in politics as well. I just think that, you know, we're, we're seeing, you know, the vice president, um, there's, you know, people in Congress and the Senate, but there's there's always room for more. We do think that's all the time we have for today. So, Janavi, mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners would like to check you out, uh, where could they find you? Absolutely. Well, if you would like to hear about what New Voters is doing, again, we are a completely nonpartisan, student-run organization and registered 50,000 students for the 2020 election. You can you can feel free to check us out at New Voters on Instagram um, or check us out on our website uh, www.new-voters.org if you know any high school student leaders who you think would want to run a registration drive at their school or receive a personal mentor. Uh, we would love to welcome them into our community. This has been the Sorry Not Sorry podcast. Shreya, if our listeners would like to check us out, where could they find us? Okay, so you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to check out any updates on our episodes, you can follow us on social media, on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And our handle is the Sorry Not Sorry podcast. And if you're someone who likes listening to things on the radio, be sure to tune back in on Wednesdays at WNYU 89.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.